Alright, so welcome once again, everybody, to another episode of No Easy Answers, a, poli- a fucking podcast about politics, philosophy, the human condition. I'm here with dear friends and comrades and uh, members of the Decode podcast. Uh, I've got Young Yudambin here with me and Q Numina. And uh, today, uh, amongst various topics, which I'll tell you eventually, they're not secret, we're not keeping them from anyone, but we're going to hold out on you for a little bit here. Um, and just uh, say that these guys had a recent episode they did on a French architect uh named paul virilio and uh if you haven't listened to that yet we'll plug it in the show notes and the soundcloud stuff uh i'm gonna toss it over to young gomman for a second and have him tell us briefly who uh paul virilio is and um why that episode was so fascinating yeah you're 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 very right i think you've described paul virilio in his truest form which is that he's actually an architect <laughs> or an architectural theorist because his major book like the book that he's most acclaimed for is about the architecture of military bunkers especially like world war one world war two bunkers that's the majority of his like academic work has been attributed to architectural theory of the military but Paul Virilio in, say, modern comparative literature, critical theory departments is known as a kind of media information and uh, military theorist who has written some really interesting books. I would say The Information Bomb is really interesting. Um, Speed and Politics is what he's most known for. And for anyone who is interested in the so-called accelerationism project, he is a genuine accelerationist in that he understands the progression of history to be a exponential uh, result of the increases in engine capacity over like 400 years. So he's really tying the acceleration of historical progress to um, the developments in technological uh, history as well. And what we like about Virilio is his media theory is, is I would say, either Baudrillardian or post-Baudrillardian in the sense that the, the episode and book that uh, Jules is referencing is The Strategy of Deception, which is a great little book about the wars in uh, Yugos- you know, the former Yugoslavia, actually where I'm from, um, and the liberation of several com- countries, one of which I'm from, uh, you know, I'll, I'll leave, uh, I won't dox that on, 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 on podcast yet, but I'll say that, you know, the breakup of Yugoslavia is extremely important to my family history as a person, but uh, the breakup of Yugoslavia and the bombing of Serbia by NATO and Bill Clinton represented a sort of strategy of media warfare. In other words, media being the, you know, central, centrifugal, really, factor in the military strategy of NATO and the West. And he talks about how military will go into uh, increasingly media-centric strategies, which Baudrillard also points out in, you know, There Is No Gulf War, where he watches the whole thing on CNN, understanding that this is a CNN war in many respects. And so if you're interested in modern warfare as it is interpreted through the lens of critical theory, Paul Virilio is the best you can get. He's someone who really understands that 
uh, on the level of uh, historical, you know, materiality. Yeah, I feel like Paul Virilio just kind of, I mean, I, I don't have much to add in terms of, to what Young said, but I think that w- the reason why we do like Paul Virilio is because in a lot of ways, he, him and Baudrillard both kind of set up this um, like ontological framework by which like modern, like, m- like the modern landscape in terms of like psyops and, and information wars in the, in the actual sense, like, <laughs> you know, like taking yeah. like some, a character like Alex Jones could only come out of that type of, um, that type of work, you know, something like Baudrillard. Um, and then Paul Virilio, you know, kind of elevates, you know, some of, I would say, like Young said, it's, it's, you know, a lot of Paul Virilio's work is kind of post Baudrillard in, in the sense that it kind of develops these points and takes them to their, you know, ultimate conclusion. And in that sense, the modern world has a framework by which you can truly, um, view it as, you know, it's like modern warfare in terms of not just like, not like just logistics, uh, like tanks and bunkers, but you know, an info war and in, in the actual sense. So, yeah, you know, I think, uh, some of the highlights that, that I had to kind of stop and ponder about when, uh, listening to that episode from y'all was this, uh, uh, the Virilio concept of the absolute weapon and how mm-hmm. he quickly sort of subsumes history into this like uh, sort of Cold War narratives where he says like NATO isn't necessarily some sort of like entity unto itself as much as it's sort of a bastard child that was resultant of communism that nobody wanted, which I thought that right. was a really interesting way to to, to phrase and look at that. Um, and then in terms of like the absolute weapon being, uh, you know, air domination uh, in a time when I think it's maybe we don't think that World War II was entirely uh, a war fought in a quest for air domination. Uh, mm-hmm. But to tie that into the like development of the nuclear weapon and Hiroshima and, and Nagasaki and, uh, uh, you know, like all of that was just kind of mind blowing for me. And so like, I really like think that episode was wonderful. And I, uh, at the start, at the start of this whole conversation, uh, which listeners aren't even aware of the topic of what we're speaking to yet, but, um, <laughs> you know, at the top of this conversation, I figured I would, I would mention that and, uh, and give you all some praise for that. Cause I listened to your stuff and I thought it was really fascinating. And, uh, I went and, uh, found an onion site for, uh, Zlib and got that Virilio work today. So that's, uh, that's awesome guys. Um, oh. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, but today we are, um, you guys were uh, kind enough to take me up on the offer doing a podcast on uh, the general sort of topic of like your favorite philosopher sucks. Uh, yeah. There's a, there's a podcast uh, called Your Favorite Band Sucks. And I really uh, like the way those two guys kind of go back and forth, just ripping on uh, the band that they choose for that day. Right. And I thought, man, this might be interesting to do. Uh, with philosophers and I had a couple of the first came to mind for me there was like uh uh young uh for one uh Carl Jung and uh and and Plato um because I've always really wanted to punch Plato in the mouth um but we decided uh that we would 
I, I think it's kind of low hanging fruit, actually. But today we're going to shit on John Rawls. And I mm -hmm. think uh, I think for most of the folks in the audience who know who John Rawls is and lean kind of uh, where most of the political leanings are in this audience, I think everyone will get a lot of hopefully a lot of enjoyment out of this conversation. Um, so I guess from the start, uh, does one of you all want to tell me, like for the uninitiated, for the people who have no idea who John Rawls is, uh, who is John Rawls? John Rawls is a very interesting character, and I, I think this will be uh, situated properly by telling you the story of how I came into John Rawls and how institutionalized he is. Did John Rawls, um, uh, did he like, was he a womanizer? Or was he <laughs> no, no, involved no, in no, these scandals? That, no, not that I know of. He seems, seems like, like a, a nerd. Really, he seems like, like a, really a real nerd guy, right? He's the nerdiest guy I've ever seen in my life. But okay, I'll just say so. When I went to college, I I, I studied a, a degree that comes from Oxford, but was you know used by this American university called PPE, so philosophy, politics, economics. So you're supposed to study. Philosophy first, then politics, then economics. They, they call and, it PPE, bro, in this mm -hmm. day and age, PPE. I know, exactly. Okay. And they, okay. this was prior to, you know, the whole <laughs> PPE. But right. uh, the whole purpose of the major was, it became incredibly annoying to me because it, it ended up being, uh, you know, you take a philosophy class with like, you know, a very like, I would say like maybe so stem uh, liberal woman and the whole purpose of the course was to you know deal with john rawls and it was to be like he's right you know because mm. for the second part the politics part you were supposed to have already accepted that like okay we're working within the frame of liberalism you know mm. so that when you get to the economics part you're like okay we're working in the frame of capitalism right and that's the that's sort of the funnel of the major. And I think all of us had problems with that on some degree, but by the end, no one had a problem with it. You know, they were getting good jobs and whatnot. And, you know, that that stuff will buy you off from that. But what I remember about John Rawls was having to learn every damn thing about him for no good reason. And so I have a lot of things that I can definitely bring up about John Rawls that that I'm happy we're going to talk about Rawls uh specifically but um i also have to say you know uh you're you're not a fan of probably uh cute and nice, like uh you know like most we will we'll defend those people to the end jung and uh who is who is the other person plato, plato. Plato. Yeah. Me, me and me and Keith will defend them to the death. That's probably why we won't talk, <laughs> we won't no, no, talk no, about like, it in this round. I didn't that's even, why I actually, I was, I was like, too scared to say like, I was too scared to like submit one. And I figured I would just throw that out there here while we're yeah. actually at recording. And I'm glad that you guys bring that up. Cause like, I don't know, man, like I, I know there's a lot of like, I, like I love theory podcasts and listening to discussions about that stuff like i got pulled into a lot of this stuff through like the deleuze and duaturi quarantine uh uh you know uh the book club that turned into a podcast that later became like acid horizon and stuff like that mm -hmm. like i had no idea this like subculture even existed and um and i think at the end of the day man at the end of the day like i i i'm too much of a materialist outlook to 
uh, to ever like buy in to like someone who is like, like Freud first, I could follow him to a certain point, but at a certain mm. point I'm like, yo, all of your stuff kind of lies within the unconscious, bro. And for yeah, young, Freud all of your art. So much. Right. And for young, I feel like a lot of his stuff lies in dreams. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's, there's more of a case to be made for someone like Levi Strauss who finds his stuff in common mythology or something. I think I like um, Levi Strauss, you know, very but, much. I think that's a good example too. As a better version of those, both those thinkers too. That's that's thank you because that's what I I kind of I think that about a lot of these philosophers that that get too lost in, you know. But at the same time, it's like I'll defend Deleuze, you know, but he's you know a metaphysician, you know, he's mm-hmm. not he's dealing with the abstract and 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 in the same way that I can enjoy like Baudrillard and Virilio and maybe acquire additional ways of thinking and lenses and things ways that enhance mm-hmm. uh, a lot of that stuff, right? Uh, yeah, there is a part of me like for Plato, I feel like a lot of this nonsense started with him, though. And a lot of this. Oh, like, yeah. All of it. Started it all like, started with Plato, you know, and um, but, and, you know, and, and it's like when, when I when I walk down the street and I talk to the average person and they talk to me for a bit and I think it's great. And then there's this moment in which I become terrified in which they say something like, you know, like I'm a soldier for Christ or something like that. And then that split yeah. second when they say like, you know, oh, my grandmother passed away, but don't be, um, don't you know, offer me condolences. It's okay. I'll see her again in the by and by, you know, like, like for just yeah. that moment when that normal person, I'm having a normal conversations to somehow says that, don't worry, I'm going to see this dead person again. Uh, mm-hmm. loses their sanity. It's like that always has been particularly <laughs> terrifying for me. So when I think of like the world of forms and I'll show Plato, I feel like, like, like you son of a bitch, you took several sane, sound minded individuals and gave them this, like this incredible power to withstand untold suffering by like, I don't know, like offering them some sort of you know thing in 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 the next this whole concept of the transcendental is always anyway but yeah um yeah absolutely i think that's i think that's very fair and i think the assessment of plato is very fair there because he's an anti-materialist in many ways and like you said he's the founder of all western philosophy and it's very important to me the reason i love plato in a certain respect is because he was actually this founder of western philosophy because he was initiated in egypt by Mm. you know an occult organization Mm. that that gave him a lot of his information that's why plato is known known as a a major hermeticist in many ways you know and and he he really uh represents an idealism and transcendentalism that is primarily esoteric and a lot of his beliefs should not be taken as related to any material reality, which is why Aristotelianism is the predominant, you know, sort of accepted belief in Western philosophy, metaphysics, and so forth, is because Aristotelianism is a much more, um, you know, scientific classification of these ideas, whereas Plato's like, oh, the forms, you know, there's forms, there's transcendent things, you know, there's, there's, uh, you know, there's there's love. There's like these things that we'll never explain is why I like Plato is like he's the initiation of philosophy as a hyper mystical concept, a concept mm. that comes through initiation, um, which is why I'll defend him. But why you're right, too, because he's so, he's so 
uh, bad for the materialist standpoint because he's not thinking about that yet. And why Aristotle brings in at least, uh, I would say, quasi-materialist, you know, look, you know, like reading metaphysics by Aristotle is insane. You're like, this is your metaphysics? This sounds like a biology textbook. It's like this, categorized as this. We're going to categorize that as this, you know? It's like yeah. a series of hyper-classifying, which is good. It's like, you know, but I'm, I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I'm a dreamer, you know, I'm, I'm hermeticist. I, I think transcendence is still possible and I'll defend those people to their death, just like Jung. But the thing about Jung that I'll say, you know, and then I, I should really hand it over. But the thing about Jung is all you need to know is he was an OSS agent, you know, like he's, he's the intelligence apparatuses mystic, which is why I love him. It's like, he's, he's the insight into what all those people were really getting into you know yeah i feel like i have a complete different relationship with plato than <laughs> probably um you guys I, I i am a respecter of plato much like young um, <laughs> but i feel like my 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 upbringing with that is a little bit different because my um undergraduate thesis advisor was um a direct student of gail fine uh, that's mm. his PhD um, advisor was, and if you guys don't, I don't, I'm not, no, I don't know how familiar you guys are with analytic uh, philosophers, but she's a she's a prominent figure in ancient philosophy, and so she's kind of up there in terms of uh, Platonist philosophy, at least in the analytic side slash historical side. Um, so yeah, I was hammered with Plato. Um, mm. I, I, I think that's why I'm kind of fond. I, I have fond memories of, you know, my advisor and things of that nature. And um, I think that sometimes Plato does get a bad rap because, you know, he does start this kind of canon of Western philosophy. And especially if you're coming out of like the school of thought of like uh, Deleuze and Guattari, um, you kind of get this like sense of like, oh, well, you know, like, um, what is it called? Arboreal metaphysics or arboreal philosophy, you know, top-down <laughs> yeah, solution. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think, uh, and I think this is a shift in my thought recently too. I, I don't think that I've um, had this take for that long, but um, I'm personally more uh, sympathetic to uh, Deleuze's solo work, um, which mm -hmm. I think is more in line with like a traditional um like West, like definitely working within the Western canon, not as radical. Mm -hmm. I think there are inklings of his thought definitely turning towards, or, you know, it plugs itself just to use the Deleuzian, um, the Lugotarian <laughs> language. It plugs itself well into, you know, that schizoanalytic, um, school of thought, which, you know, it's decentralized, yada, yada, yada. Um, won't go that into that rabbit hole quite just yet, but, um, <laughs> Yeah, I think that he is a pretty, uh, how would I say, like, I think Deleuze, at least how I understand him, is quite the traditional philosopher. And I know that that might, like, that'd be a hot take. Um, but I actually, I think that, for example, he has this paper um, about Plato. It's, um, I forgot what it's titled, but it's about the simulacrum. And I, and I take that, I've, I've read that paper so many times. 
Um, and I actually take that Plato, the way that Deleuze reads Plato, Plato is a materialist um, in the strict sense. And I've been trying to tie some of Simone Weil's thought into mm-hmm. how Plato has an interpret, like a discrete interpretation of, like he brings it up, I think, in the permanities about the receptacle. And that's mm-hmm. kind of how to incorporate like a materialist interpretation of, of Plato. Um, I think that's an entire <laughs> different episode that yeah, right, right, on that right. subject, but, um, I, I do read Plato as kind of like a, at least through Deleuze as a, as a materialist to some degree. And, um, <laughs> wow. I think that's why I can, I can absorb. Yeah, I, that's that. fascinating. I would love to, to, and, and I'll look that up to try it. Cause that's a, a materialist reading of, of Plato would be most interesting to me for sure. Um, I even get mad to bring this back to Rawls, man. I even get mad when I feel Plato creeping up in mm. philosophers that I, you know, and and one way that I kind of see that happening, I guess, to offer up an initial critique of Rawls um, is that, you know, like it Rawls just like and I think you could probably blame Plato for for this whole medley of, of shit I'm about to list. Right. But like. You know, when you think about social contract theorists in the state uh, state of nature, it's like the state of nature seems like it's based in an idealist sort of place, right? Like it's in oh, a, it's, just... it's in a shell, right? Which is why I love Marx because he comes from a materialist angle about that, right? At least yeah. if he's in a, like a trying to centralize human beings, uh, you know, he's going to talk about how we build with tools and that's what separates us from animals or something like that. But like, uh, it's not like. Oh, the property was a little insecure or human beings are perfect and then institutions corrupt them. But how this relates to Rawls is in this uh, in like theory of justice with the veil of ignorance, like, you know, the veil of ignorance, like ignorance being key word, like, because I'm kind of ignorant as to what the entire scope of the veil of ignorance uh, encapsulates. Right. Because like, yeah. what exactly? And I, and I, and I gave some thought to this and I thought, you know, actually like, for for the soul for the whole Rawls sort of setup of a veil of ignorance and and I guess it's helpful to like give a the the the, the for the listeners who again the ones that are trying to be inclusive of all audiences no matter what level you're at here but like if you think of I think of John Rawls as a pizza party I think of him as like <laughs> you know like if if you like if you ordered pizza and it showed up unsliced which never happens right but let's say you have this pizza mm-hmm. you have multiple people who have to eat you have a pizza and it's unsliced yeah. and now you have to slice this pizza up and uh great, this analogy great was, example this, this analogy is probably stephen west i'm probably just cribbing that dude you know um but like basically like if you had to slice that pizza up yourself it seems like you would cut that pizza up in such a way uh that you know you didn't get to pick your slice and nobody gets to pick their own slice and uh, you would cut that pizza up in such a way that you would be happy to receive any given slice of it. And so mm. that veil of ignorance is like not knowing what how you're going to slice that pizza up. Uh, and uh, and so this veil of ignorance in in John Rawls's sense is meant to to be a sort of impartial reigning dispensation, like it should distribute the wealth and goods and the benefits of society to everyone from beneath the veil of ignorance. So this already starts to sound like it's set up within a uh, within an idealist kind of transcendent world of form, sort of like ideal mm-hmm. space, right? That has really, uh, when I think of what it, what can we take away of that that we can apply towards material worlds and and stuff like that, you know, I, I, I feel like the veil of ignorance is John Rawls's way of 
saying, a, you know, a separation of personhood, a yeah. separation of all things that would constitute a political identity in the first place, right? A, a sort of separation of race, class, and gender to where if you slice that pizza up, uh, despite your race, despite your class, despite your gender, you would you would slice it up in a way that anyone would be happy to receive any slice, uh, including yourself. Um, which it doesn't work that way because you can't just separate, you know. And 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 then I so that thought kind of hit me. And then the last thing I'll say about that is that I feel that Rawls, in an insidious sort of way, through this theory of justice as fairness and the veil of ignorance, and presuming in such a way that we can separate ourselves from the things that constitute a political identity. This is actually a really insipid sort of reinforcement of whiteness, because whiteness in a lot of ways, yeah. one of the things that it is, is an ability to separate oneself from yeah. one's race, class and gender. So right. like, so like it's very easy for the benefactors of white supremacy in history to say, like, I am stepping away from my ancestors who owned you as slaves or I am stepping and separating myself out from that identity. Because the very people who have political identities that are constituted of race, class, and gender and are inseparable from that, you know, they can't divorce themselves from that. Yeah. That is, it's life or death. Like, and so, yeah. and the expectation that one should be able to right. uh, separate oneself is like a reinforcement of of whiteness and a diminishment of of ah, fucking history and, and and all sorts of class and, and, and yeah. societal dynamics. Anyway, so that's like an initial uh, critique of Rawls. Um, Absolutely. I think that's yeah. the, the that's the main critique of Rawls in, in many ways, because, you know, my critique of Rawls is in, I would say, you know, for the, the purpose of this podcast, let's do three parts. And the first part is exactly what you're saying. The idea that the veil of ignorance is, in a certain respect, a divorce from the actual social reality of life itself, you know, and, you know, I, I would say like Adorno himself, I think everyone should agree that like theory should reflect reality, not some abreality that you're making in your own head. This weird pseudo Platonist idea of the veil of ignorance is an idea that is predominant. I would say in a lot of analytical philosophy, a lot of the idea of this, like, rational actor like that like we can all inhabit the space of this rational actor when life itself is a series of social factors that make that sort of uh you know idealistic theory not even compatible with anything that's going on in the average person's reality and i think that's that's exactly uh, what's wrong with Rawls's theory, just like you're saying. Um, I think this the second thing for me, though, is the idea that through the veil of ignorance, we would all come to a almost universal standard of basically probability. Because what Rawls is saying is that through the veil of ignorance, we would all look at an economic system through the veil of like, oh, would you rather accept, say, you know, these are examples that, you know, are in the Rawlsian landscape. Okay. 2% of people are very rich. 98% are not very rich. Okay. That's one. 
say. Another one is, you know, 30% are rich, 70% are kind of poor, right? And then you're like, oh, 80% are poor, uh, or yeah, are poor, and then 20% are kind of rich, you know? And you keep going down the line with these probabilistic models that are supposed to be through your own, you know, veil of ignorance level rationality. And you realize that his descriptions of what we should want, which are, you know, great, are just like his own Sochdem politics, right? He's like, oh yeah, you know, we should all want like semi, you know, uh, distributive politics with, you know, some people can make money, but other people, you know, should get at least social benefits, you know, and you can use Rawls to argue for, you know, universal health care, but, you know, that's, that's basically the extent of what you can argue through the Rawls landscape, which is like, why wouldn't you want any other type of social distribution? Why do they have to decide that, like, this is like, the most rational position is is the most absurd part of it. Any analytical philosophy, I would say. The way that I see the veil of ignorance, I just see it as like this like pinnacle of <laughs> like white liberal smugness, right? Like, um, <laughs> like saying, oh, everyone's everyone's the same. Everyone, if it really came down to it, you know, with yeah. a historicity or um, you know, you know, this transcendental lack of of uh this transcendental lack of uh how would i say it yeah or identity um you know we would all come to this rational conclusion that you know uh we would you know like i like the example that you brought up the pizza you know we would slice up the pizza accordingly to everyone and i think uh his you know one of his you know his most famous opponent nojik actually has this uh, similar i would say you know, starts from the same uh, presuppositions, the same assumptions about how, you know, you know, the same liberal assumptions, and then develops a far greater, you know, I'm not a Nozakian by any chance, (laughs) by any stretch of the means, but I think that Nozak actually comes with a better understanding of human nature, um, you know, still starting from the framework of, um, um, what is it called, the the state of nature, working towards, you know, some sort of how does how does you know a quote unquote rational agent uh, determine property, and then you know how mm-hmm. those agents all develop uh, social contract theory, blah blah, and develop society um, through a minarchist point of view. And I think Rawls just kind of you know in this Kantian this Kantian tradition kind of just um, develops this uh, what is it called um, tabla rasa um, yeah. from Rousseau and just takes that as an a priori given, um, completely ignores any sense of history city. And that, that's the whole point. That's, you know, that's the hypothetical, that's, that, that's the whole, how the whole hypothetical works. But, um, I think no, like for example, no, exa- uh, if you would take no position, it would be that the individual would slice up the pizza accordingly to the best, to their own advantage. So they would obviously slice, if you give someone the chance, they would slice up the peach pizza in a way in which they would receive a larger share of that irregardless or despite right. you know, everyone getting right. a smaller amount. Right. So, right. Right. Um, yeah. It's like, uh, it's like Nozick inadvertent, uh, support for, uh, Hobbes or something, you know, <laughs> through that. Oh, absolutely. 
Yeah. Man, uh, you know, the thing about Rawls, too, is that, like, uh, you know, he kind of, you know, a lot of this is, a lot of what you guys were saying is really generative, so I have, a, I have like, a hundred thoughts at once right now, but I, but I feel like Rawls kind of ignores, like, the cultural particularity of, like, someone like Giambattista Vito might point out, you know, like, there are, and I don't want to get too, like, uh, like, this, this, I think this line could probably spin out, like, to be very, uh, like the Eurasianists pick up on this sort of line and they and they and they make it they take it to its furthest logical extent and it becomes uh fucked up at that point. But like, you know, Gian Battista Vito had this notion that like there are multiple ways to be human and that every way that one goes about being human is equally valid, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh and I think that there's a lot of beauty and insight to take from that statement. Now, when you take that and you become like a I don't know, like a monarchist in defense of like, you know, what, it, it, you know, like Dugan, where he's like, oh, well, if the West, you know, what does the West care if we have a king, you know, if we want mm-hmm. our president to be sacred, then it's a, it's because of who we are as Russians or something. Then it's like, yeah. well, wait a second, you've kind of taken this beautiful sentiment and, you know, part of that is beautiful, but you've made it insidious on the other side of that. Um, but yeah, I think, uh, I think Rawls, you know, in this sort of, he commits this sort of philosophical error and like an assumption of the universal going to that white liberal smugness that you speak of, dude, of like assuming that we're all the same, that we are all uh, yeah. kind of would be uh, would be delighted by the same sort of arrangements. Um, and uh, and like to that end, I think that like, you know, there is a sort of Rawlsian I don't know, like a Rawlsian superiority in a way, like, like, you know, you know, young, when you were talking about how like you go through this course and, you know, PPE and you just sort of gradually accept that, like, I don't know, like you come out of that course, it feels like uh, being uh, someone who believed that the arrangements of a liberal dispensation through the sort of idealism of Rawls would be a system that is most correct. Right. But like Rawls doesn't, you know, in the same way that it knows it comes along and points out, hey, human nature is you'll cut up this pie in a way that you, you would want a better piece. Um, he just doesn't take into account. There's no check and balance over the top of Rawls's system to ensure that this veil of ignorance is ensuring the ignorance to ensure the system works. Right. There's no uh, exactly like there's no over the top sort of insurement of the system. And I think that's a microcosm of liberalism in itself. I mean, if you listen to someone like John Mearsheimer speak about liberal universalism and the sort of uh, battle for liberal hegemony, um, liberalism in itself assumes itself to be the superior system that uh, that must quell other systems uh, to not have meaningful competitors and to uh, ensure the you know continued growth of markets, right? Like... Um, yeah. which, I mean, we haven't even mentioned free markets, but like, you know, Rawls system is kind of I- incompatible with free markets, or at least makes no mention of the brutality of free markets in a lot of ways. No, too. It, yeah. it accepts it as the, uh, necessary part of his entire political philosophy, meaning it's the economic organization that will ensure all of this. Right. Simply by distribution at whatever we all, through the veil of ignorance, agree to, which is, like you're saying, absurd, because the veil of ignorance strips away everything that's actually important in some sort of democratic, you know, decision making 
as to how we should distribute goods. Like, yeah, how, like how can you have repu how can you have reparations for you know former black slaves through that framework? Or how can you have like a a you know political program that deals with the racial or even like disability parts of being a human? Like how how do you actually figure that into a political philosophy in which we are all supposedly the, uh, you know, and that's where it becomes white. It's like the idea of just being like some, some out, outsider that you can view, which is very, to me, telling psychoanalytically of like Rawls's position. He's like, when we're <laughs> thinking of Rawls, we're thinking of his position. Well, you know, yeah, that's the veil of ignorance is like, are you like a nerdy white professor who has very little stake in the lives of all of these people like what's the best you can come up with and this surely is it it's just like he needs to keep his job and i think that's what everyone needs to realize at the end of the day is it's like as far as he goes is is a justification of capitalism at this almost you know i would say dem show dem social political level now, I might be like confusing a bit of like a theory of justice with Rawls's another one of Rawls's work, uh, political liberalism. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, the Rawls, you know, would say that his <clears throat> philosophy is, you know, important to a pluralistic society and that, you know, you would use his uh, sort of idealist arrangements in order to, I don't know, quell like major disagreements and allow members of a pluralistic society to uh to i don't know coexist despite very hard differentiating opinions on topics right um and so i get that but like rawls also said that political liberalism is based on the idea of public reason which is like that when um making a political decision or decisions people should rely on um, arguments and reasons that can be accepted by all reasonable members of society. I want to put quotes over reasonable members of society, uh, regardless of their particular moral or religious beliefs. And the concept of public reason in this sense, like public reason is terrible, actually. And I think it cuts to the question of like, what do we consider a meaningful democracy if public opinion is not the thing that we should abide by as sort of the thing that needs to be fulfilled in order, in order to be considered democratic, right? Because like, if you think about the ways that public opinion will shift in just a few short years or decades, like, you know, what comes to mind for me is something like, uh, I mean, an example of like a Jim Carrey movie where like, you know, in the, in the nineties, uh, you know, uh, when he made Ace Ventura part one, I think, you know, I think we all had a few years where we really enjoyed that movie or thought it was dumb or whatever, but it was part of the popular culture. And and there's this one scene that it's a very damaging scene in which, um, you know, for uh, members that listen to the, of the trans community, I mean, you guys know the scene that I'm talking about. And, and people have been hurt by that. You know, people were hurt by that then. And mm -hmm. um, but that was like a major marketed, you know, Hollywood movie. Right. And it seems like today, I don't think that movie could be made or at least not that scene, not that plot, not that end point in that movie. Mm -hmm. You know, so so just the way that public opinion has shifted from that. Right. If we're going to take Rawlsian shit and say, OK, well, public, you know, uh, public reason is the uh, is what we base this on. 
I, I think it's a it's a deeper answer towards like the concept of democracy, but I think that it's uh, another way that Rawls kind of shows maybe a, a lack of forethought in how he wished for us to to find the ultimate decider on this stuff, you know. And um, yeah. and it's interesting how he comes up with like, oh well, you know, uh, we should definitely have some sort of like end all be all authority of like public reason, but he never says anything about that towards like the veil of ignorance uh, or. Like going back to the checks and balancing we talked about earlier. Yeah. Going back to what you guys mentioned earlier about the veil of ignorance, um, uh, kind of establishing itself without any like, like meta level to kind of assert itself or to kind of check itself from, you know, ensuring that they're, um, that it produces the proper outcomes is that, um, Rawls does kind of have two principles uh, by which he kind of establishes the veil of ignorance, which is the first one is, you know, the, the um, like liberty, like, you know, obviously yeah. working from a uh, liberalist point of view, which is liberty. And then the second one is equality by which, yeah. you know, mm. liberty is justified. Um, and, you know, I guess the, the questions that I would, ask is um because you know those are those are essentially two um i don't want to call them axioms but essentially two presuppositions um that those are kind of givens you know right for this whole thing to kind of work for um but they're set up in like a in like a uh, inversely proportional relationship yeah like the more equality you have the less liberty you have supposedly in this entire conversation yeah. which i don't know that that's doesn't like, make sense you know yeah and the way this is staged for a lot of uh, political education is fucked up in my opinion but yeah yeah no a hundred percent i think that i think the big question is what what makes equality good yeah a priori i think that's the biggest uh, question. And I think Rawls does, I think Rawls fails to answer, uh, because essentially he, he yeah. establishes equality based on liberty, right? It's, that's the whole point of distributive justice mm -hmm. that yeah. you would want those who are More. disenfranchised to, um, those who are disenfranchised to have the op same opportunities to express or to, uh, propagate the self-respect, uh, which is the basis for liberty. At least that's how Rawls sees it. Um, which is, yeah. you don't have the same opportunities, freedom of speech, um, you know, opportunities to, to ba the basic opportunities of democracy, then you are not actually, um, you know, giving, you're, you don't have the fair, uh, society that, that, um, liberalism advocates at least to express, yeah. um, you know, libertarian, libertarianism or liberalism in that sense. Um, but I think it begs the question, what makes equality in itself good? Um, right. And then in that sense, and I'm not even trying to poke it as in saying that inequality in itself is good, right? That that would be the libertarian <laughs> position, which is that. But that's also Rawls's position, right? right. Uh, well, that some people deserve more still in his distributive system. He comes up with, you know, like, oh, we should base. That's why I keep calling him a socialist. We should have like taxing of the rich, but there should be rich. And there should be a working class, which is one of the big gaps, I think, too, in it. Because like we were saying, like, what is equality then? Like, what is an equality of even reason through this veil of ignorance? 
he, it's, it's his reason really he almost presents that um you know it's that meme that jordan peterson comes up with which is like what the what the the, the communist wants is the quality of outcome <laughs> you know yeah, it's, it's exactly like, um, well, that that is his thing, kind of too. Yeah, no, no. I mean, it, it kind of is, but it's it's uh, cognitively dissonant because if you still advocate for the rich by which you tax to then distribute that wealth, um, you by necessity of that system, you have to have um, a, a elite class, so to speak. You have to have yeah. a class distinction. John um, Rawls, closet Nietzschean, you know. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> um, In many ways which then it it destroys or at least when it's it, it kind of presents like a bug in the system because um if you have this in this even without the veil of ignorance if you if you then step into this whole notion of this inequality that exists this gap that young you brought up um then by necessity of that gap you you already established something in the system by which the bale of ignorance can no longer take hold, which is that there is a class distinction. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you essentially have to erase that class distinction, essentially uh, establish false consciousness for them, for people, for that system to to work. He's yeah, by definition, he is a socialist. Or right, he's the he's the he's the absolute like king <laughs> of supporting the idea of a idea of capitalism that's compatible with socialism even you know and you're like like you're making so many assumptions you know like you've made the exact right port point of what i'm saying about like the distributive outcomes like if they don't make any sense either from even like nozick destroys him from a libertarian far-right even perspective and his stuff doesn't make sense generally in in this dis- distribution that's like oh people would just accept this you know and i think another big aspect of this that i don't get is is he accepts a very very like pro capitalist pro even liberalism standpoint where he combines the idea of money and freedom together and he calls them primary goods and this is a big assumption in all of Rawls. He says, everyone should want more primary goods than less. And this is like, you know, unfortunately, it's what I wrote, like, you know, my like freshman year, you know, final on. But it's like, it, you know, the, the idea of wanting more primary goods than less is a political statement, right? From both the, you know, My example would be like, you know, obviously a communist or I'm just saying like, you know, Franciscan ministers would say that's not true. You know, Buddhist monks, you know, there's tons of people who would not agree with that political statement that that is a primary point in Rawls's arguments. And he makes several of these, you know, these are these are you know, proliferated throughout the entire book of theory of justice. But this is one example of like actual political assumptions that he is claiming to be apolitical. Hmm. You guys know that uh, John Rawls also endorses stochastic terrorism. That would be 
that'd be based. <laughs> right, right. Uh, so I, so what I mean by that is that like, uh, you know, like the the emphasis of like uh, political liberalism being uh, imp- like important to civil liberties and political freedom. You know, it's it's all based on the idea that people should be free to hold and express their own beliefs and values as long as they do not harm others. And uh, for those of you out there who like, I don't know, have term papers to write and don't know about ChatGPT yet, one way to write a term paper is to just put quotes on a word that's doing a lot of work in a passage of your author and then think about it real hard. And uh, so I just like put quotes over that, like, uh, as long as they do not harm others, right? Like, first of all, what... what, that's a lot of work that what harm is doing. Like, what is harm? Like, what are we free to do in society so long as we don't harm other people? Like, the, right. the degree of harm, you know, I wonder, like, you know, in terms of stochastic, stochastic terrorism, like, that's it, maybe not a measurable harm uh, in, in terms of uh, what is a perniciously harmful effect on society that is not easy to measure or calculate or uh, assign a value to. Um you know, things like this, like, I don't know, maybe that's a, a minor critique of this stuff, but I just don't think that, like, given Rawls's position and sort of failure to understand that, like, introducing a veil of ignorance is an erasure within itself, uh, failure to sort of answer the question of, like, why is inequality or why is equality good a priori, um, uh, things like not assigning a sort of, like, I don't know, for not being a closet Hobbesian and assigning, a, you know, a Leviathan over the top of the veil to ensure its enforcement, um, you know, stuff like that. Like, I don't think that Rawls um, would have considered stuff like this or he, it would have considered the degree of what harm, uh, what constitutes harm in that realm. So I have two quick points. Before, yeah. because I do, I do want to let Young take take. I know that he has something to say probably about this, but no, no, no go ahead. Um, absolutely points, which is, um, I absolutely hate <laughs> when, uh, at least like this type of analytic philosophers, um, you know, they're, I don't even, they're not even deliberately hiding, you know, it's like this straight up utilitarianism. But the thing that I hate about utilitarians, um, is that they, you know, they have this utility calculators, they, they're like, <laughs> well, we just need to minimize, you know, overall, um, what is it called? Uh, we need just to maximize overall well-being. Um, but it kind of, you know, Rawls starts off his argument of distributive justice or what is it, his general theory of justice. I don't know what he calls it in his book, but um, with these two principles, right? The principles that I aforementioned earlier, um, equality and liberty. So you have to predicate your utility on transcendental values. It, it, you don't even have to, like, it's almost like, uh, they state that it's no, it's, you know, it's just overall well-being. This is the most rational uh, position. Every person is, is is always wanting to maximize their, well, their self-interest. And by doing that, you know, by diminishing the amount of harm or overall harm, you naturally come to this conclusion that, you know, you have to reduce the harm and maximize, um, what is it called? Uh, maximize happiness or whatever you want right, right, to right. quantify it. Primary oh. goods. <laughs> Everything that you ever love is a primary good, apparently. Right. But then they don't explicitly state the, or they almost kind of like completely side bracket that what are those primary goods? You know, are they an uh, end in themselves or are they a means to an end? And if they're a means to an end, then your utility calculus, your utilitarianism is predicated on an entire different system. You're not even bringing up 
you know, these transcendentals, which are virtues in them in and of themselves, yeah. um, which have nothing to do with rationality, first of all. Um, because I love the point that you brought up, Young, about you know, like the Franciscan school. There's a there's a the Spanish school, uh, the, the what is it called, the Salamanca school, um, mm-hmm. which is you know just a type of kind of like what do you even say it? It's like a it's basically like Catholic economics. Um, yeah, which is they're kind of a service oriented. Yeah, so they want to maximize the human aspect of right. the economy, yeah. which is. How do you get the economy to work to maximize eudaimonia? That's what Franciscans do, you know? It's just Literally. like, how can we serve the most amount of people at one time? You know, this is the Catholic sect that is most uh, specified on service, you know? Mm. And that's what's so interesting. It's like, so you're not including everyone in this argument. You're, you're including the majority in your own mind would agree on this distribution outcome or the outcome of which you're saying more primary goods are better than less primary goods even though we're going through you know another example is like mass amounts of climate change like we might need to restrict both the economic output and the you know behavior of human beings for the same savior of the planet you know like there there might not be an ability to accept you know like uh oh you can spend whatever you want or you can you know like throw away whatever you want you know any further that 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 like prime liberty and economic outcome might not be like feasible in the future which makes no sense. Well, I think there's even like a bit of uh, exclusion in the language in which Rawls's ideas are described. Like even going back to the idea of public reason, which is the idea that when making a political decision, uh, people should rely on arguments and reasons that can be accepted by all quote unquote reasonable members of society, yeah. which, you know, like Michel Foucault has entered the chat. Um, (laughs) you know, so like, you know, uh, it, it, so I, so I think of, you know, a lot of this stuff is predicated on, you know, uh, distinctions of inclusion and exclusion. And I would be curious, you know, I wonder if like, I mean, I'm sure he did, but I'd be, you have no idea how much like, you know, as much as like, I don't like John Rawls and as much as I'd like to, to drill him myself in many ways, I feel like. It'd be far better if I could set up a situation in which like we could inject like Carl Schmidt in the background of John yeah. Rawls as he's writing this stuff, you know, sort of like being like, like, you know, just Robert Nozick is already a yeah. little bit of like the devil on his shoulder being like, listen, man, I'm going to cut this pizza up and I'm really going <laughs> to take the bigger slice. Right. And it's well, like, listen, oh, listen to this though. Yeah. About the pizza and about Robert Nozick, which is the most interesting part, I think, of any part of this is, you know, so when we're talking about Robert Nozick, we're talking about this, I would call him anarcho-capitalist libertarian philosopher. Yeah. yeah. And he, he wrote this book called Anarchy, State, and Utopia, in which he figured everything is right, you know, if if we do the human-to-human transactions that are based on complete rationality, which 
is what we're talking about with Rawls too, which I think is so interesting, is that both him and Rawls are analytic to a degree that is nonsensical. Because they both they both are accepting things that don't actually make sense in the real world. And for Nozick, it is the idea that everybody who makes a transaction has the same amount of information, right? Mm. No, capitalism is entirely based on asymmetrical information. That's how you extract surplus value, especially in the new world. Especially with like, you know, I'll give an example, you know, car loans, you know, like 15% car loans, you know, bad mortgages. Like these are how people make money based on the ability to extract surplus information from people who don't know that information, right? And that's why his libertarianism was wrong. And I'll give him slight credit at the end of his life. He wrote a book about his whole life, and he basically actually uh, rejected a large amount of his philosophy, being like, I realized I this, none of this actually has to deal with the real life, and no one will accept that yet as wow. like interesting in this guy's life. He's like, look, I was an academic. I was writing these things that I don't actually believe in that are not true, you know? And he ended up being like, people are more important than these theories. And you can read his final biography, or sorry, I mean, autobiography, because he wrote it himself. It's called like A Life, something around those lines. And he rejects a large amount of what you're reading in even Anarchy State and Utopia as like, oh, this is right, you know? Wow. I want to I want to say a couple different things about uh, all those, but I so I I spent some time like in Vermont uh, on a cabin last year, and I had to I had to take some reading material with me. You know, the time I had a couple books in front of me, and a couple of them were on fascism, and I didn't was like I can't just go read about fascism by like you know I'm gonna choose different. And the only the other book I had was uh, uh, Todd May's book on uh, Jacques Ranciere, and mm. um, and so uh, I really gained a, I, it wasn't the point of the book, but I gained like a, a more powerful critique on Rawls uh, sitting on that lake reading that book about, you know, like liberty versus equality sort of things, you know, and and uh, the ways that, you know, just Todd May talks about, uh, uh, talks about like how, you know, Nozick would have us achieve liberty through actually like living and through it's through liberty that like equality is achieved, I suppose, you know, and mm-hmm. whereas and, and the thing he said about Rawls, which I thought was probably most powerful, was that um, freedom and equality and the things that are to be uh, dispensed or the justice to be distributed in the in the Rawlsian language is uh is treated as an end, meaning that like one is to like stand by and receive it. And, mm. and, and then like, so if you think of it as treating that as an end, and then he's, he's focuses over on Rawls and he says like equality and justice is more of a process in the nose, nose sense. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he switches to Ranciere and he says that Ranciere would have us 
take these freedoms as a presupposition. And rather right. than have them have a process or an end, we would presuppose our own individual liberties and equality and, and that sort right. of stuff. And and I think that's that's really powerful and speaks to the sort of, you know, always unanswerable questions of like why Americans are so fucking politically unconscious and and uh and 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 what's why hasn't there been a revolution and stuff like that and it's you know towards the end of speaking of like Rawls developing like a false consciousness this veil of ignorance man I think that's primarily what it's it's like fairness and justice and equality as an expectation and a promise yet to be fulfilled and that's tragic and yet we're still treating them as an end and I think Rawls does a great deal of theory and sort of, you know, builds a lot of scaffolding to allow us to sit and wait to receive, you know? Mm -hmm. I think that's very true. And uh, I'll go back to something cute said that is very true, where the whole point of even Virilio and of everything is information war. The idea that information is war. And who gets such information as a product? You know, have you ever read Klaus? Uh, have you ever read uh, Clausewitz, the no. military theorist? No. Great guy. You should read it. I mean, a lot of it is just about like how you should, you know, uh, tie up your horses or you know, deal with your horses. So don't read those. But like, he next to Sun Tzu is the, you know, head of head of war theory. And what he says is basically that the uh, politics is the extension of war by other means, is the reverse quote, I'll say. Right. Because what he says is war is the extension of politics. But I think he really figured it out, that they're two of the same things. Violence and you know, the extension of a political philosophy against people will lead to their, you know, violence against them. I think that speaks to just like, you know, Foucault's critique, again, Foucault enters the chat, um, <laughs> which is, you know, like, that's why he comes with that. And I, it's kind of like a crude aphorism that I think that people kind of use to, to distill Foucault's, um, philosophy but is that you know that knowledge is power right uh, yeah but you know just to use it as a as an as an analogous way to get to to uh this this analogy that i'm about to make which is that you know it's that whole notion of how like the originary act of language which is um or at least the written the written word which is you know somebody somebody has to write something to convey a message or to yeah. send it to someone um and, you know, the person that interprets the message has a certain um, power dynamic over the person who uh, conveys that message. And to the person who's relaying that message, they suddenly have a disproportionate or asymmetric power relation to the one receiving the message. In this case, you know, a king sends a message to another king, the person reading that message yeah. in another language, or if it's in a, the, let's say the, the king is illiterate because, you know, it's the first act of uh, literary language then, yeah. you know, you know, there's an asymmetry there. There's just um, based on that action. And I, and I think um, how that, how that asymmetry, you know, is almost like a transcendental act, which is 
like you mentioned, Young, which is there's always going to be a instance in which someone has a disproportionate amount of information, you know, it's information all the way down um, in which they can use that to their advantage. Yeah. Um, and in that sense, that's, that's where I think Rawls falls short, which is at least Nozick is aware of that asymmetry, whether mm-hmm. he's right or wrong about 90% of his philosophy. That's a different question, but at least it's like, presupposition is actually grounded in um some notion of historicity not a hundred percent but at least you know there there is some some and that's some, from someone coming from the right you know that's, i know that's just, i know he's the far right <laughs> um and then just another quick point which is just um at least how it, it plays itself out and we can see this in our you know in our shitty democracy which is um time preferences, which is, you know, you're always going to, you know, you ask a person on the street, do you want $20 now? Or do you want $20 later with the same guarantee that they're going to get those $20 regardless of what time they pick? Yeah. Um, I would say almost like 90% of people are going to pick, um, $20 now. Um, most, mostly people don't have that time preference that, uh, what is it called? The, um, they, they wouldn't push their time preference, or delay their, their time preference, um, which is the same way in how it works with governments. You know, it's like if you can yeah. maximize the goods and services and extrapolate the largest amount of um, surplus value, are you going to use that to maintain societal levels optimal for generations to come? Or are you yeah. going to use it to bur- are you going to burn all that out to yeah. maintain the current living standards for people for a certain type of people for a certain class right. of people? Um, I think ob- the obvious, the obvious one is you're going to burn that cash out now. Exactly. I think that's the the most important part of what we're talking about in terms of how the both one the system that is accepted by Rawls, which is like the capitalist system that we're talking about, but also like at least Nozick understands that. You know, and he's arguing from the perspective of, you know, the most conservative standpoint in history, which is like every transaction that happens under capitalism following these parameters, the, you know, rational symmetry of actors is good. You know, and any distribution of that wealth that's distributed through good interactions is inherently immoral. That's that's the big argument of Nozick. And the thing about Nozick is he shows you that like the entirety of capitalism is actually wrong in that none of these arguments that he makes are right, or you know, in, in the sense of, you know, Adorno has a one-sentence quote that I love, which is that theory should reflect reality. And this is not a reality. This is a idealism of capitalism that is used to justify the the kind of exploitation of everyone on a simultaneously labor and informational level. And mm. what what he's getting at is, oh, you know, you should accept everything, you know, everything is, you know, at this level of rationality. And the problem is it's the same weird academic rationality that Rawls is talking about, 
where he's like, you should accept everything from this weird socialist perspective of me, this 1970s academic, as the veil of ignorance. Whereas the veil of ignorance actually is only used to justify a very specific standpoint, which is, you know, social democratic liberalism. It's not used to justify communism. And there's a reason for that, you know? And I think there there is a room there is room um for a certain type of um idealism, you know. Um you know, I don't want to say that, you know, uh like idealism in, in itself, and, and I don't mean like the idealism, like the metaphysical idealism. I don't think that's what you were referring to either. Um, but like, you know, that idealism in sense in the sense that that utopianism, right? Working towards utopianism. Um because for example, you know, like somebody that Deleuze kind of looked up to a lot was, you know, Louis Althusser. And um, he was an idealist of sorts. Um, I think his, like his communist project, or at least how he was a self-acclaimed communist um, was that, you know, idealism in itself, it can still be materialist, materialistic. And I think, you know, that's where we get a lot of like Deleuze's interest in Althusser, which is, that you can't, you know, the, the ideal isn't something that there's, it's not like a, a teleological end that you work towards. It's that, you know, the, it's a, that virtual aspect of the object uh, is already here. Like it's already tangible. You can already work towards it. It is materialist. It's materialist in a robust sense of the term. Um, and I think that's, that's the type of idealism that I think me and Young kind of um, are at least attracted to, which is, you know, it's like, what are the tangible, what are the tangible conditions taken into account, you know, his, like a historical materialism, uh, a, a sense of differentiating, differentiating inequalities that people already have. And how can you establish, yeah. you know, a true utopia, not like utopia in itself isn't some like an end, it isn't an end no. in itself. It's, it's, you know, it's something that you actively like tangibly work at. Um, Salvation, you know, some sort of infinite salvation that you're working towards which is why i also hate you know i think we mentioned in the chat habermas habermas is the liberal version of salvation through communication he's like eventually we're gonna get to a point where we can communicate equally between everyone i'm gonna use a trump voice just because like that's that's kind of exactly what he's gonna be doing and it's like we're gonna get everyone equal on the level of communication and then at the end of the day, it's like the only people who read Habermas essays or books are people like, like I'm in academia. I don't read that shit. It's like, it's, it's like maybe a hundred people. It's like, how is that helpful in any degree? Like a liberalism of equality at the level of academia never works at the end of, you know, at the end of the day. Yeah. I think, um, you know, there's a few more like uh, there's a few more critiques here. I mean, there's no we're not short on any critiques of Rawls at this point. <laughs> yeah. All right. But I would say the one thing I think that we haven't mentioned <clears throat> is that. You know, so far, everything that we've talked about in terms of the veil of ignorance and the person slashing the pizza and the things that lib political liberalism aims to achieve and like the resolution of deeply held uh, beliefs that conflict with pluralistic societies, like all that that we've mentioned and covered, man, all that is 
you know, largely based in person to person individuals, you know, based in, 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 you know, the ontology of like a, of a singular like person or a member of society. And, but I think the thing that Rawls theory is trying to achieve is really more of an institutional sort of thing. And mm-hmm. to that end, I, I don't know that like, I don't know that you can, you can neatly, I mean, it doesn't, transfer you know you can't just plant that on top of it now that you've accomplished this theory of justice Rawls, you can't just like transplant that over from people to institutions uh and i think there's a lot where it would fall short uh on that sort of stuff and um that's that's exactly where we connect is that they you know Rawls is transferred to institutions from what you know what i told you is like Rawls is the only person I was allowed to learn for a year, which is insane. Yeah. I had to write everything I ever knew about Rawls and everything I hated about him. And it's like, why, why is that the guy, you know, because this is the answer of liberal arts institutions to, you know, uh, Oh, economic theory, which they also made me learn at the end that like disproved it all, you know, supposedly, but it's like, why learn Rawls over, you know, and I, I even asked my professor, I'm like, why not at least add Marx, you know? Sure. One essay, you know, one essay of Marx, one thing, and it didn't work. And and, and so I'll just say, you know, and I'm sorry to be so loquacious on this topic, but if you're going through this right now and you're learning Rawls, you know, and you're in, say, college or you're, you learned Rawls in college. The best anecdote I can possibly give to you is reading as much of G.A. Cohen as you can, which, you know, I'm not a socialist, you know, I'm, you know, I'll, I'll hint slightly more left of that, but I'll just say as, as a argument, G.A. Cohen, the socialist is the best, you know, sort of, sort of answer to the insanity that is, the philosophical arguments of Rawls or, you know, Nozick or any of these people. Yeah, I'll just say as a kind of a quick summary of a lot of the stuff that we've talked, I mean, uh, Rawls has like a lack of foundation. I mean, he kind of assumes a veil of ignorance without providing a clear explanation of how the situation could, uh, I don't know, guide moral and political decision making. Uh, There's like a limited scope, like he he says nothing about justice beyond our own borders. Uh, that might be the reason why he's taught so heavily. Um, you know, uh, you know, I think it's limited appeal, man. Like uh, there's a whole lot of people who don't share his values or phil- philosophical assumptions. Uh, uh, lack of realism is it doesn't adequately address real world changing challenges and complexities of politics and uh, a sort of insufficient attention to power. Um, you know, there's a a lot wrong with Rawls and he is held up on a pedestal. And, um, you know, I think, uh, you know, a lot of ways, I think, uh, maybe some of the antidote to, to Rawls is, is Lenin, like state and revolution is a lot better read than this bullshit. Um, and, uh, I mean, that's rather obvious statement, but I mean, Oh, so so all this stuff being said, man. Um, one more thing I wanted to say is that uh, I, we briefly there we talked some shit about utilitarianism, and um, I, I think 
I want to say this is Derek Parsons who came up with this concept of the utility monster. Are you guys familiar with this thing? I don't think I've heard of this. So like, uh, so like under the utilitarian model, uh, the reasoning is that, uh, you know, one would make decisions based upon uh, the, the greater benefit of the whole, right? So mm -hmm. like the utility monster is this thing that as a general rule will always benefit as a whole more so like under the rules mm. of utilitarianism you would uh indeed be like morally obligated to serve anything that benefits the whole to the utility monster um and, oh. and there was another and i hope i hope this is Derek parsons that i that, that like did this uh that i hope that's correct anyway uh but the other part of the utilitarian sort of uh, the mess of logic they can fall into uh, was he had this thing that he called um, like the repugnant conclusion. And mm -hmm. uh, and if I'm understanding this correctly, it was like a, a hypothetical situation with like Earth 1 and Earth 2. And uh, basically like Earth 1 was like our Earth and Earth 2 was like an experimental plane where we could fuck around mm -hmm. and figure out how to increase overall happiness. Mm -hmm. And um and it got to where, you know, the repugnant conclusion is, is that, um, like, you could, you know, like, as a, because, okay, so I guess this premise is, like, under these guidelines, uh, if we were going to increase happiness, it would make sense to have, if we had more people to experience happiness, mm -hmm. then, then happiness overall would increase. So by that rule, if we made a rule where everyone just started reproducing as much as they could, yeah. like Earth 2 would fill up with a lot of happiness. Yeah. Uh, and and so utilitarian logic would make that solvent. Uh, and, and then it gets more ridiculous from there in that one could feasibly increase overall happiness by way of getting rid of people who did not experience happiness. Uh, that detract from happiness, um, mm -hmm. which is which was the repugnant conclusion, um, which was a, a really wild sort of uh, utilitarian thought experiment to read about. Yeah, that's yeah. insane. <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah, I will. I will give slight credit to Rawls. I I really do appreciate that he does deconstruct complete utilitarianism although he doesn't understand how much of it he's sublimated he 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 does say like you know like oh utilitarianism assumes that like you know people can be measured you know in such a way and his response is basically i can measure them better you know i can do it better primary goods is a better metric hey, you know hey. it's like Hang on a second. This is really funny. Guess what? It's not Derek Parsons who came up with the utility monster. I'll give you a guess who it was. Who? Robert Nozick. Oh, uh, Nozick. Nozick definitely <laughs> would have done that. Have yeah. you ever heard of his uh, Wilt Chamberlain example? That's his famous example. <laughs> oh, is that like the, uh, I don't know, people with physical abilities or uh, I don't that, that sounds terrible. it's ca it's but capitalism it's like, argument capitalism like the willing and able and the the ability or, or like yeah it's it's like it's, it's famous argument but it's more about value and it makes it makes very little sense but it makes sense to like ignore me mm -hmm. I feel like it's like so you go to a basketball game right 
and Will Chamberlain is paying, you know, or playing, and you're paying for him, right? Yeah. You're paying to see Will Chamberlain play. And you're paying, you know, as much as you can because you're like, I want to see Will play, you know? Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, someone comes in and they say, okay, we're going to distribute, you know, uh, the pay because Will isn't that good, you know, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the idea is like, if, if you're going to have Will Chamberlain, you have to have like an equality of value through transaction, but it mm-hmm. makes no sense. Cause it's like, think about Will Chamberlain, you know, like Will Chamberlain has at least 60% of his money was stolen from him through like middlemen already of mm-hmm. like agents, you know, like people who like he really didn't need that were just set up as a profession, you know, like yeah. accountants, things like that. It's like Will Chamberlain is, is this example that he uses as like the best of the best, right? Like athleticism wise, but it's like, even in his real real world example, the example doesn't hold up because it's like the actual Will Chamberlain was paid way below what he should have been, you know? Right, right. Wow. Yeah. Um, Nozick, at least he had the decency to sort of, uh, I don't know, have a, you know, end of life sort of, I, I had no idea that he had the sort of end of life uh, uh work that he did um and i'm really looking forward yeah. to reading that because uh, it's interesting it's really interesting you don't often get that from these people you know i mean it's not like schmidt wrote something like that in the cabin he was uh no. exiled to or something um yeah that's wild uh do you guys have any more criticisms of john rawls that can we think of any that we didn't mention here i mean there might be some we don't have to do all of them but any sort of uh any sort of powerful or profound uh critiques that and notes stuff like that i'm like going through my stuff but yeah 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 i'm going through my stuff here too and i don't really uh see much here at all so i don't know biggest criticism that he's uh He's taught too damn much. <laughs> yeah. Too much. He's been thinking too much. Literally well, about wrong things. Well, you know, um, I found chat GBT very helpful for this episode uh, because <laughs> I really did not want to go and sift through a bunch of John Rawls. I was perfectly willing and going to, and uh, I have the stuff. I downloaded them. I was like, yeah, this is okay. I got theory of justice, got political liberalism, got... Uh, the Cambridge lectures that justice is fairness, the the thing you did in 2001. I was like, all right. And and I was like, well, what's yeah, this thing that came out this week called chat GBT? And I was like, oh shit, this is giving me all the answers I need for this conversation. This is great. I don't have to, <laughs> I don't have to look at this shit, man. Um, yeah, there's, you know, some of the John Rawls stuff, man, I don't, you guys ever met any like John Rawls stands other than professors? Like, like, do you have yes. people that there are, are these people exist among us? They exist, and I'll tell you, I'll just tell you exactly where these people are, and I won't give any names. They're political consultants to governors, they're uh, uh, heads of departments in military defense organizations, they're, uh, you know, 
consultants at McKinsey and or, you know, maybe Boston Consulting Group. These these are the type of jobs people take who I've met who accept John Rawls as their premise. And that that always concerns me. Mm. I think he's just kind of like the like, you know, like the the father of like leftist liberal liberalism and like Mm -hmm. at least like even if not explicitly implicitly you know that's where the whole notion of like i wouldn't want to say like reparations but at least like the the, like reparations and like this vengeful way of Mm -hmm. like um how would i say it um like just doing like oh like why are you in this bureaucratic government position and it's like oh because you know, I, I picked myself up from my bootstraps, you know, cause no one else helped me. And so now my job is to make it hard for some, you know, to like, you know, reject some, some white kid through affirmative action, yeah. you know, through some affirmative yeah. action committee. So I feel like it's mostly those type of people who, um, you know, they have a lot of, a lot of Nietzsche and recent resent, resentment. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. And they, they use Rawls as a way to justify their, it's like, actually I'm being, yeah. I'm I don't even good. think they, I mean, good. Yeah. 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 I think it's just the way it seems like. rationally justify their position. The people who quote, quote Rawls will still be working at like, you know, like Northrop gunmen are like, you know, Raytheon. Like these are people who like are very smart. They're not dumb, you know? But they have to, they went to college just like me. And it's like crazy to see that like the people who go to college are like very, very willing to take a job for six figures at a military industrial complex job. You know, just as like before this episode, I was imagining like John Rawls with like uh, Carl Schmidt looking over his shoulder as he wrote this stuff, you know, and kind of picking at him. And uh, I also had a thought of like, I don't know how Domenico Lacerdo might react if one was seated on a plane next to him and you just like started picking his brain about John Rawls. <laughs> like, yeah. like how upset Domenico might be. He might just pretend to like not even speak your language at that point, <laughs> you know. Um, but yeah, you know, um, I I also like, I you know, I, I mean, I had all these sort of hypothetical thoughts of like, you know, I wonder... And this is a question that you guys might have some takes on. Um, but someone like Gregory Lukacs, like the destruction of reason, who made the statement about how uh, there are no innocent philosophers, that each of them has, through their work, contributed towards the rise of fascism. And, and you know, the destruction of reason, he kind of goes along and points at all these different philosophers, right? But I wonder, like, if Lukacs wrote on Rawls, you know, I wonder what what Lukacs might have to say about uh, John Rawls's role in sort of reinforcing fascism. And of course, I mean, he, you know, Lukacs is gone and the, the timelines don't match up and all that stuff. Right. But that's why these are hypothetical situations that I tend to think of and, and throw out my guests. Uh, well, you know, we're sitting here and I have an imagination, you know. I think with that, it's just that to the degree that to the degree that like we affirm some sort of like progressive narrative of like history or like theory or thought in itself um you know i think every thinker is gonna to some to some degree is gonna like 
contribute to fascism. Like it's just easy to plug in any ideological framework. It's going to be harder for some than others, but it's really easy to plug in that ideological framework and it's going to spit out, you know, uh, it's going to reinforce the critique. It's going to sublimate <laughs> the critique, uh, uh, to, you know, reinforce fascism. And I mean, to what degree, you know, is, is Rossian reinforcing fascism? And so, I mean, it reinforces it in so far as it's taken as the, as you know, the true ideological, I mean, it's just Nate, you know, NATO, NATO realism is Rossian, yeah. Rossian praxis at the end of the day. That's, that's really what it is. Why do we have, uh, you know, NATO it's they're they're not even watchdogs of the world. It's not even to like create Western hegemony. It's literally to create a centralization of, of, uh, of electrical power. Yeah. At the end of the day, it's like what's the what's the bedrock of all nation states' power? It's oil. So what the fuck oil, is oil, natural NATO gas? Doing? Yeah. It's not yeah. if it's not yeah if it's not creating geopolitical quote unquote geopolitical stabilization. It's like yeah. what the fuck is a war on it's Ukraine? Like, it's destroyed. You know, like why do they choose the states they do? Like my you know my country isn't even considered a NATO state. It's a NATO ally because they know that if Russia took it over, they wouldn't want to be responsible for it. You know, it's like it's it's a whole framework based on geopolitical stability, based on a series of quantifiable numbers, you know, like oil barrels, natural gas barrels, you know, also troops at certain levels. And it's like, will we be able to? you know, position things properly where we can stabilize these prices. In that sense, it's incredibly materialistic if you think about it. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's, I mean, I think that's, that's a great way to say that the John Rawls liberalism that people want to express has no idea what goes on to stabilize the actual liberalism, which is, you know, the terrifying reality of multiple intelligence agencies, multiple militaries, multiple, you know, wars fought at the behest of stabilizing an idea as we, you know, think about it in many ways. But in reality, it's it's the idea that justifies the material reality that we forced on people that we that, that we should really be thinking about, not, oh, you know, through a veil of ignorance, would we accept it? It's like, it's not a veil of ignorance. We killed millions of people for it, you know? Stop, you know, stop thinking it's <laughs> it's a veil of ignorance, you know? This might be a hot take, but I think this is why, and I say this in like a, I know it's controversial and I, and I, and I say it because it, it is, but I think that the real winner of the ideological war, you know, um, you know, what's it called post-Soviet Union collapse is actually the Soviet Union insofar as <laughs> it's, um, you know, the, the, bureaucracy, the bureaucracy, the bureaucratic oligarchy that, you know, came from the, you know, the dying Soviet yeah. Union and turned into what we now call NATO, um, which is it's it's not even Western hegemony as much as it is bureaucratic this bureaucratic realism yeah. um, that permeates the whole world. And I think 
I think to what you said, Young, which is, you know, I don't, I don't, I, it's, you know, it's one of Nozick's biggest criticisms. It's, which is, we don't even know to people are agnostic or even unaware to the degree by which the, the state that we would require to create that stabilized system to give them the style of living that they require, that they want yeah. to maximize. They would never, they would never realize the, the equality of intelligence agency required. <laughs> and that's what we've been born into is an intelligence agency that's, you know, and I, I'll say this, like, you know, you don't have to believe me, but like, that's probably killed their president at least twice, you know? That's that's literally like not capable of a democracy, you know, in in many respects, is the result of you know our inability to come to a an actual real resolution as to what democracy is, you know. And I'm, I'm talking about Rawls. I'm talking about you know no Nozick, but I'm also you know in many ways talking about Marx too. It's like America has no possible, you know, way of dealing with interpretively what's happened to it, which is a series of, you know, you can call it psyops or you can call it, you know, clusterfucks, whatever you want to call it. You know, like Rawls doesn't make any sort of allocation for like, uh, was it real? Real politique, you know, like that no. nation states will and do uh, advocate for themselves, right? To advocate for better positions, more resources, land, all that stuff, right? And that internation conflict, the, the sort of anarchy of nation states, the sort of grand poker table where everyone is cheating. Um, yeah. That, like, this uh, seemingly, you know, distributed and fair. Uh, system of justice would, uh, you know, it doesn't have any sort of like, you know, uh, conception of, of anything beyond its own borders. So like yeah. when, when liberalism itself becomes a sort of monster that is NATO, that is the project of Western hegemony or the assumption of like sort of liberal universalism that like this system is, uh, you know, the, in the in the sense like the Fukuyama's end of history that this is the only game in town and that this is the only game that survived out fascism and communism and uh you must sort of uh acquiesce to the uh to the post-world war ii world order uh yeah. you know all that stuff like i mean this is it's an incredible point it's very like paul uh virilio uh to of you to say that like uh you know, like this is an incredibly materialist philosophy when you look at it as sort of NATO realism. And you're right, the people yeah. behind the veil of ignorance don't are ignorant of like what actually takes to to justify that positioning in the world. And and you can even um you can even I mean, and this is stuff that's not like conspiratorial or anything. You can trace this back to like George Kennan's letter in which he, you know, said that there that we now control over like half the world's wealth at the end of 1945 and World War II. And we should strategically kind of make moves in order to maintain that ad advantage over the rest of the world. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, like this, uh, this sort of this Rawlsian stuff that we've been making fun of 
um there is a sort yeah. of side of it that's a bit like dark and fucked up and yeah. uh and uh yeah so um yeah it's very insidious yeah it's very insidious you know appreciate that <laughs> um all right so by way of rounding out y'all um I'm just going to throw you one last question here. And um, it's a simple question. Um, but but if you think that, like, if 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 Carl Schmidt had 10 minutes in a room with John Rawls, uh, what would he say to him? To be to be fair. I don't think that Schmidt is too far or at least they're cut from the same liberal cloth. At least that's mm-hmm. how I read Schmidt. So I don't I think. I think Schmidt might disagree on a lot of things with Rawls. Um, but I think where they would both like, how con, like, uh, what's it called? Like, yeah, like com- where do they converge? Yeah. Yeah. Where they converge would be that notion of like, um, like that state of exception, right? Which is, um, you, you, I think it's just that mechanism by which you establish a state, you know, it's quote unquote for the people or whatever you want to say. But at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's establishing a mechanism that establishing a mechanism that can maintain a certain sense of equilibrium. And I think to that, to that sense, I think, I don't, I don't think that, I I think it's just to me, Schmidt and Rawls speak to the same monolith of liberalism that has permeated permeated you know the the latter half or the yeah the latter half of the 20th century which is just that liberalism like you mentioned in the fukuyamian sense is that you know there is no there is no big ideological competitor to liberalism at this time and i think that's that's the current the current theoretical dialogue that people are having which is what the fuck do we do now? Like, you know, it's that, uh, you know, that Deleuzian um, quote, which is, you know, what weapons are we coming up with? What what, yeah. what do we even have? What are the conditions of possibility under liberalism to counter it? Exactly. And yeah, I think that's just the, that's the framework. That's the reality of it. I think, I think that Schmidt in, in the biggest sense is, you know, just as much as I think even Leo Strauss, which is the father of neoconservatism, even calls Schmidt a fucking liberal. Um, and in that sense, I don't, I don't think that, I don't think that they would fight as much as they would be like, oh, actually, you're, you seem like a cool dude. Yeah, I think, I think that's so extremely right. I, I really like what you said. Uh, cute. I, I really, I really think that's absolutely correct because I, I think that the political theology of liberalism is completed through Rawls. And I think if you're asking me what Rawls would say to Schmidt or what Schmidt would say to Rawls is Schmidt would say to Rawls, you know, you've done a great job. And Rawls would be like, what? (laughs) You know, like, (laughs) I I don't think Rawls realized what he completed in his, in his lifetime, because, you know, and that's why I kind of bring up my own personal experience with this because it's like, I, I thought college would be more than John Rawls. Is is that crazy to say? Like, I, I thought I would learn more than John Rawls. Like, in my academic career, I had to read Marx largely outside of all academia, which, like, people will never 
agree with you. The conservatives will say, oh, you know, you, you, you got, you know, radicalized. It's like, no, I got radicalized in the wrong direction because college tried to radicalize me in many directions, you know, conservative and liberal. And neither of them made sense as to what I was seeing around me, you know? And I think the thing about Rawls that completes the political theology idea is that it, it, it it's a liberalism large enough to be considered doctrine. Does that make sense? Like mm-hmm. it's it's now doctrine. And that's why he completed what uh, Schmidt would consider the basis for an entire theology of polit- political science that is currently coming out of the Rawlsian tradition in the leftist America that is kind of destroying us on many, on many levels because it's it's turning everyone into a Rawlsian zombie of centrist liberalism that will not not even accept the tenets of fucking Rawlsianism in the first place. Like the idea that we should at least have, you know, like 75% taxes on the richest of the rich, you know? Right. Yeah, that's like uh it's like Americans believe in the Rawlsianism, but then like refuse to accept the Rawlsianism that, sh- that is offered to them in a way. Right. It's like uh we're sitting around waiting to reject justice as an end, you know? It's like uh all these activists like I don't know, like protests, whatever, and they're like, here's your stimulus check. And they're like, I don't need a fucking stimulus. I work for a living. What are you talking yeah. about? These other assholes out here. And it's like yeah. under these under these sort of like contradictions, it is it is maddening to to yeah. even I don't know, to like you said, to have this sort of doctrine completed in a way, to have this sort of civic religion in place, you know, to where right. like the fucking statues of the goddamn forefathers intended you to get this stimulus check because you're a fucking American and you got to stand there and be like, I, I work for a living, man. I'm too proud for this. Dude. I know. You know, it's, 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 it's fucking amazing. It's like Ron Sierra doesn't even work at no. that point. Like that you can't even presuppose that you're deserving of any sort of justice as yeah. an end or equality. It's like, yeah. It's like, and God no. forbid you're starting at the wage at the wage and being like wage labor is inherently immoral. People are like, well, I work for a living. Like you're saying, <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, yeah, but you're getting paid. 70% less because that's how your employer makes money, you know, and you're just, they're just like, well, I like working. And it's like, me too. You know, <laughs> everyone likes working, you know, we like to do what we want to do and to work at what we like, but it's like the idea of surplus value has been so, uh, you know, disconnected from the American working class that it's, it's, it's not even like feasible at this point to like, even talk about it because like, if you go to college, you're you're not even going to be taught that. Like I wasn't taught Marx at all at my institution studying philosophy, politics, and economics. Don't you think you should learn Marx if you're right. thinking about those things? Like that's insane to me. Like I had to learn that on my own. That's 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 a crazy consideration for understanding how we should think about these topics. I'm not saying you should be a Marxist, right? Like I, you know, God, God forbid, I, I am a Marxist, but I, I do believe that everyone should actually have to contend with Marxism, just like they have to contend with liberalism, and just like they have to, co- to contend with Austrian economics, 
you know, economic conservatism. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, uh, you know, it, I just one thing real quick, and I let you know, you got something to say. Uh, just that uh, that you can make it through an entire like uh, political science uh, coursework, and and really not even like hear the name Vladimir Lenin or have to read anything, you know. Oh God! No. When like the motherfucker killed the Tsar and founded the Soviet Union, and it's been <laughs> like the 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 dire, bitter enemy that shaped the way the world is for the last, you know, uh, right. you know, like so, decades, and. Uh, and I had to go like seek that guy out, like some sort of like uh, illicit book that I bought, thinking that was right. a list <laughs> at that point. And uh, and you know I have Lenin, a Lenin book, and I have people that come over and they're like, "You're reading Lenin, really?" Or, you know, and it's like it, that. Not only can do you have to go out of your way to find the dude, learn about him, find his work, etc. But then you do, and people think you're like all of us. Like you're just like, hey, I, you know, I would like distributed justice and fairness and equality. And people are like, so you want to murder five hundred thousand yeah. people? Um, that's it's what like, they're telling me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's maddening, dude. You know, um, uh, but like. Yeah, so I guess uh, I mean, thank you guys so much for hanging out and, and talking to me. And um, and again, you know, we've had uh, Young Ramen and uh, Cute Numina here on the show. They are from the Decode podcast. And uh, if you want a recommendation from me, their their episode on Paul Avrilio was excellent, uh, and it, it provided a lot of really good food for thought. And so I thought it would be amazing to have these dudes on and talk for a bit. And I think this has been a really generative conversation shitting on John Rawls. And, I, and, it, and I'm glad it went to this unexpected place where we started speaking to Rawls as a sort of hideous sort of NATO realism materialist <laughs> sort of uh, thing. Because I didn't expect it to go there at all. Um, but guys, where, where do we find you? Are you your podcast is like on SoundCloud or something. At least that's where I found it. Is that uh, where most folks, that's where you want to send folks to find your stuff? What's it's on all platforms. It's on all, all yeah, like Apple, okay. Spotify, SoundCloud. Yeah, wherever you want to listen, that's perfectly fine. Sweet. Um, all right, so we'll include links for that in the show notes. And uh, I hope, dear listeners, you've uh, got something of value from this. I hope that uh, if you are a liberal, you're really brave for listening to this stuff. I hope you've sharpened <laughs> your own sort of, you know, ideological blade. Um, I hope there's something that enhances your way of being in the world through this conversation. And uh, as always, uh, you know, take care, take care of each other. And um, I will catch you guys next time. Bye. <laughs>